0: Welcome to a very special episode of Film at 11. I'm here with Lisa Neville of uh, Cortland University in New York State and Matthew of Cabo's Gremlin Time. We're here to discuss a movie that many people might not give a second glance to, but which we found to be quite an extraordinary piece of American filmmaking.
1: The movie we're talking about is from uh, 1942, the very first year that the, the U.S. was in World War II. It's from Universal Pictures. It stars uh, Basil Rathbone, Nigel Bruce, Reginald Denny, Evelyn Anchors, and Thomas Gomez. And it is
2: Sherlock Holmes and the voice of terror. People of Britain, greetings from the Third Reich. Again, we bring you disaster. No,
3: no, no, Matthew. Let's start at the beginning. The most important part of this film is the card. So at the very opening of the film, in all the shadows, uh, right over a sort of silhouette of Sherlock Holmes, it reads, Sherlock Holmes, the immortal character of fiction created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, is ageless, invincible, and unchanging. And so I've, I was immediately struck by this because, of course, on the one hand, there They need to include this so that we can understand why Sherlock Holmes is still operative in 1942, which is (laughs) when the film takes place. But I think even more importantly, because this is a film about England fighting for its life in 1942 against the Germans, that it's stating to us and letting us know not too subtly that England itself. The empire, which is, you know, sort of not so much of a great empire in 1942, but it will always be invincible, unchanging. England will never cease to be. And I think that this is a key element in the film.
0: Well, we had just got into the war America had in December of 41. There was a very big push in Washington, D.C., various diplomats, And in essence, undercover agents from the English government and industry were working their way through Washington, D.C., trying to convince FDR to support England and get in on the war and send supplies over, but also to propagandize, to get the radio and get Hollywood to make uh, movies that support the war effort. And so this movie, Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror, is one result of this along with things like Mrs. Miniver and other films. Notice how long that title card stays up.
3: Oh, very much so. Now, this
1: opening credit uh, title card uh, goes on to say, in solving significant problems of the present day, he, Sherlock Holmes, remains as ever the supreme master of deductive reasoning. This part is addressed to the viewer whose lives in the fall of 1942, when this movie came out, everything has changed since the beginning of the year, all due to the war effort. And so in this movie, the audience, who in the war effort are solving the significant problem of the present day, um, this is reinforcing the effort. This is telling us you know, why we fight. This is what it's all about.
3: This is a propaganda film to get, certainly to get U.S. support for fighting in the war and for saving England, but it's also has a lot to do, I think, with coalescing the notion of Western civilization. We are on the side of England, of democracy, of the Enlightenment, of, you know, of, yeah. a Western notion of civilization, which is opposed to the Nazis and also opposed to this new wind rising from the East, the communists. Uh, any anything that comes that is foreign. We yes, are sir. supposed to now be all united against all kinds of foreign agitation, whether it be anarcho-communism or fascism. Yeah, that's the central theme of this film.
2: It is folly to stand against the mighty wrath of the Fuhrer, you need more testimony of his invincible might to bring you to your knees? A secret airplane factory somewhere in England. Listen, the screams of the dying can still be heard. This is the voice of terror. Are you there, people of Britain, shivering in your cellars? Listen, Operative 41, the fuse is lighted.
0: The premise of the film, uh, there's a lot of sabotage going on in England. And it's always
2: announced in advance on the radio from uh, Germany. This is the voice of terror. Englishman, do you still await your doom in your stupid, stuffy little clubs? It will come, I promise you. Operative 23, the time is now. So there's apparently
0: a British trader living in Germany who is becoming a tool of the nazis the equivalent of lord haha if you remember that figure from world war ii who was later arrested and tried in england and in fact rebecca west wrote a fantastic article about the trial of lord haha and its ambiguities much like later on hannah arendt covered the trial of uh, Eichmann yeah, uh, for the new yorker and expo- explored some of its ambiguities you know, the, the, the winner gets to rewrite history, et cetera. But in any case, he's baffling
2: the, the secret, the war council. Based on information of enemy movements, they seem unable to cope with the voice of terror. Already six military catastrophes have occurred. The unmitigated nerve of the press. Now they're attacking us.
4: Blast the fellow the kingdom come. Only we could keep this insidious stuff off the air.
0: Led in part by Sir
2: Evan Barrow.
0: I'm not sure that I agree with you. What purpose would
4: that serve?
2: Well, the people wouldn't have to listen to it.
4: I've been working along other lines. I've asked Mr. Sherlock Holmes to come here. What? Sherlock Holmes? This isn't the case for a private detective. It's a matter of state. He's unorthodox and theatrical. I can tell you all about him. Gentlemen, perhaps I can throw some light on the subject
0: myself. He summons Sherlock Holmes to the council to enlist his aid in tracking down how these messages are igniting the sabotage.
4: First of all then, the voice must not be blocked off the air. But
0: he's a menace.
4: All over the empire, this horrible news is broadcast. People are frightened, panicky. The British people are not so easily panicked. It's dangerous, I tell you, to let this thing go on. Dangerous, yes, Captain Shaw. But we must continue to listen. I'm convinced that these disasters are only a prelude, a smokescreen, to cover up a more diabolic plan. And I intend to find out what that plan is.
0: He and Watson then go into action. We will let the
4: council know at all times just what you're doing. I shall give you such information as I think wise to disclose in the interests of safety, both the public's and your own.
0: But he suspects almost instantly that there is some kind of leak. The inner council has never shared its secrets with anyone. So he does not want to tell them.
4: I demand that you keep us informed of your activities in progress.
0: Come along, Watson. And so the rest of the adventure is him trying to track down. We don't know it at first, but he's trying to track down the leaker or the traitor within the council. It's Uh, like
1: an espionage story at this point, even though it's supposedly a detective story. He comes in, he's like called in like James Bond almost.
0: This movie is just about an hour long. It's really tightly composed, tightly written. I would argue that it may very well be the first, if not one of the first true films, noirs because it has that incredible chiaroscuro that you see. I think it would have been wonderful to see it on the big screen in 1940 in luminous silver nitrate on that big screen where the illumination was so incredible. There are so many great shots and so much luminous close-ups of certain characters. And the film was photographed by Woody Bradell, who later went on to do one of the key films, noirs of all time, Phantom Lady, oh, which, by oh, the way, yeah. was uh, produced by an associate of Hitchcock's, Patricia Harrison. So an incredibly tight, suspenseful, interesting and supremely well-acted movie.
1: It's like the Casablanca for Universal Studios. It opens with a map of Europe, and there's a voiceover, and we have this montage, and this situation is set up as a result of the war. We don't see the hero until quite a ways into the movie, and he makes a sort of entrance. Um, And there were all these great character actors that worked at Universal who are throughout this movie. I mean, none shines better in this film than Evelyn Anchors.
0: She has at least two incredibly powerful scenes. The first of which is when Holmes tracks her down in a Limehouse pub for criminals.
4: Where's the girl Kitty, Gavin's sweetheart? His wife. Can you get her? It's urgent. Try.
0: Holmes, I don't think I like this place much. He has the unfortunate task of telling her that her husband died tracking down some information for Holmes.
2: Oh, it ain't possible. I was with him only two hours ago. (sighs) Trying to frighten me.
0: No, I'm not, Kitty.
2: It's you. You killed him. I warned him to stay away from you. I knew you'd do him in.
0: I had nothing to do with it, Kitty.
2: Well, who did then? Who did?
4: He was knifed on my doorstep.
0: And she doesn't want to have anything to do with it at first, but he convinces
4: her... Gavin was killed not by his own enemies, not even mine, but by the enemies of England.
2: So that's it.
4: Yes, Kitty, the Nazis killed him. Help me to find out what Christopher means, and I promise the man who murdered Gavin shall pay for it. The Nazis
0: caused his death, and that inspires her to get up, circulate through the room, and try to track down this one-word clue that her husband had given Holmes. And then she makes this really rousing speech that's actually quite convincing to me, too.
2: (laughs) All right, don't help me then. Cut your own throats, that's what you're doing. Help me or help the Nazis. Sure, the Nazis killed Gavin. They might be your friends protecting them the way you are. Don't you know that all the crimes they commit are being blamed on you? Well, they are,
3: and I hope you hang for them. You can have them. For me, I'm British, and I'm proud of it.
4: Nobody's gonna call me a Nazi and get away with
3: it. So at this Tell point, Holmes is trying to uncover two mysteries. One is who is the voice of terror, who is the person in England, the mole who's raking this havoc, and he says there's a sinister plot underneath that is even larger yes. that he has to unearth. And so this is going to involve all of his deduction, and he's so he goes into this sort of uh, East End of London, this sort of lower class area uh, to. Look for the man who was getting information, who died on his doorstep, is part of this criminal underground, this sort of lower class community of people who are, who, who the government and the, the, the structure of England has not done a whole lot for them. And they don't feel a lot of loyalty to it. They're, so they're sort of living by their wits. And as he walks into this area of where most upper class people do not walk, uh, somebody menaces him. And Sherlock Holmes says, this is still a free country. A man may walk where he pleases.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Even if it's the dark and sinister alleys of Limehouse, as they say. (laughs) Great.
3: Yes. And so then he says to Kitty, who's who's upset that her husband is dead, of course, but who doesn't want to have anything to do with the police and the the people that he was always in conflict with. And Sherlock Holmes says, the cutthroats of the world, the ones who killed your husband, they menace us all. You can help stop this savagery. And then so she is convinced by Sherlock Holmes. And then she goes on to convince this entire crowd of hardened criminals that they should align themselves with homes and she says to them help me or help the nazis i am british and proud of it and then she calls them cowards and she says there's only one side no matter how high or low you are the one side is england yes and then all of a sudden everybody is convinced and it is because of this legion of this lower class army, as Sherlock Holmes says, that Kitty commands that Sherlock Holmes is able to be successful.
0: And she's also talking to we in the audience.
3: Yes. You, you, you and
2: you, we're all on the same team. We've all got the same goal, victory. Now we are, What do are you want to know? Spread right out all over London, but find out what Christopher means.
3: We'll find out, no fear about that.
2: Thank you, Peter. Well done,
3: my dear. Remember um, the, the millions of people who yeah. suffered greatly during the Great Depression. They don't necessarily feel any kind of alliance with the Rockefellers. And yeah. you know, why should they be fighting? They don't uh, you know. So this is a c- convincing them as well.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So mm-hmm.
1: the um, photography in that scene, we've got, oh, my God. oh, man, it's the German expressionism, shadows everywhere. And uh, as,
0: or- as Orson Welles said, Black and white photography is the actor's friend.
1: As the action continues, we have Holmes and uh, Henry Danielle is one of the council members with Watson. They go into this dark warehouse. What?
4: The river. This is part of the old Christopher docks. Never heard of them. Christopher? I say Holmes. Isn't that the word that it's Gavin? Watson? Oh, sorry? They're almost forgotten. They were built before Victoria.
1: And then they go down to the cellar.
0: And one of the weirdest props I've ever seen in a movie, Holmes's flashlight, which is the length of a cane.
3: I noticed
1: that, too. (laughs) And then they go into this room where it's just totally pitch black. And then this light from the ceiling beats down on them. Suddenly they're bathed in light and an arm is pointing in a gun, pointing at them. It's just a disembodied arm in the light. Good evening,
2: gentlemen. I knew your curiosity would be your undoing, Mr. Holmes. You were expecting me then? Yes. I had hoped that the entire council might have come. It would have been a pleasure to deal with all of them, quietly and effectively.
0: As viewers, we always tend to identify with the good guy, but the villain, character, a somewhat heavyset fellow named Meade, uh, played by Thomas Gomez. What do you intend to do with us? Were it
2: not that time is so pressing, we might first put you on trial. On trial for what? Crimes against the Third Reich, misguided efforts to wreck our inevitable victory.
0: The, the writers take care to give him some motivation. A downtrodden fellow who has now, he's British, but he's found the opportunity to excel. No longer will he be laughed at or ridiculed or whatever. At
1: this point, I'm going to give a quick shout out to the screen right play writers. Lynn Riggs, yes, the one who wrote Green Grow the Lilacs, which was turned into the musical Oklahoma. And John Bright, who had been a Hollywood writer for a while, he had done the screenplay for The Public Enemy, and he did the screenplay for She Done Him Wrong, among many others. So this is a very solid script. So after this confrontation in this warehouse, uh, Meade escapes, and he's on the run back to his hideout. And here comes... uh, Kitty, who's pretending to be on the run from the police. And so, like in a film noir, here we've got the couple on the run suddenly, but she's really working for the police. And uh, Mead now uh, takes her into his hideout, and they become intimate in such such a way that he starts to reveal himself to her.
0: And his childhood dreams in this remarkable speech he gives of being in armor and riding down the street and he's got this fantasy of absolute power over human beings when i was a
2: boy i dreamed a dream i was dressed in armor shining blue gray armor i rode on a horse through the streets where the people cheered hailing me i rode over the bodies of underlings prostrated before me their blood ran out along the gutters like a river what if this was no dream? What if it was prophecy? What if all this comes to pass? Wow, something must have happened to you. And
0: uh, they're dashed at the end when he learns that his closeness to Kitty has been a setup on the part of Holmes. And the sense of betrayal that he shows, also in close-up, is so incredibly subtle. It's a really remarkable actorial turn. He's got this incredible presence.
3: (laughs) When he writes about his dream of riding on a horse in armor over the bodies of yes. his underlings prostrated <laughs> before me, their blood running out in gutters like a river. <laughs> and, and I mean, of course, that is so repulsive, yes. that fantasy of absolute power. And then he says to Kitty, what if this is a prophecy? So then, of course, you there's this sort of sense of madness. Mm. He's gone insane because of this vision. But you are absolutely right. There is something so, we're being seduced also. We're being seduced to yeah. feel a, a kind of pity because he's gone so over the top. It's so, because of the armor and the sense of being a little boy and feeling powerless and this sort of um, fantasy of, uh, uh, of power is supposed is to compensate for his impotent feeling of impotence. And, yeah. You feel pity for him. It's kind of interesting. What, what, do you, what function is that serving?
0: Well, two things in regards to that. One, it evokes that speech, evokes the famous image of uh, Hitler, who is not named in the movie, by the way, as a, as a knight in armor. And he's riding in profile on a horse. It's a fairly famous image. But then also the acuity of the screenwriters is they're showing you why Nazism is so seductive to certain people. Now we understand, oh, well, Nazism is a process by which weaklings can take power. And then uh, you say, Lisa, at the end, when the other Germans are ready to start their attack.
2: You understand what you are to do?
4: Yes, sir. I'm going with the first contingent to Liverpool. They have been ready and waiting for weeks. One guy says, you
2: go. Birmingham where I used to slave in the factories, but not anymore.
3: The day has come at last. So it's using the Nazi argument against them because Mead says a couple of times that we only care about the powerful. Oh yes, remember when he's holding them at gunpoint.
2: We know that only the powerful are worthy of respect. Let our record speak for us. Your record speaks. It's brilliant.
3: Thank you. A
4: brilliant record of rapacity, cruelty, torture, deceit and murder.
3: And so, it's sort of like this is a counter to their argument, which which you're saying it's showing the seduction of power and showing that, in fact, people who are attracted to Nazism because they're attracted to this notion of absolute power are, in fact, powerless.
0: Basically, yeah. it's a textbook Ayn Rand uh, <laughs> set up. <laughs> and also you know
1: but the uh, the actor who plays uh, Mead is uh, Thomas Gomez this is his first screen appearance i kind of compare him to Raymond Burr as that's oh. a really intense actor as we said this is a movie is just a little over an hour long so things really move along and so everything culminates in this ruined church on the southern coast of england where Holmes has brought the council and there's some army guys and they've kept captured all the Nazis, and Holmes sits everybody down and explains what's going on, and in the course, reveals who the real mastermind is. And lo and behold, it turns out to be Sir Evan, the man who had brought Holmes in, in the first place.
0: The revelation of the mastermind of this whole thing is very cunning in that it still exonerates the upper classes.
3: It isn't Sir Evan born to the aristocracy. But in fact, Sir Evan was actually captured 24 years ago and <laughs> murdered by the Germans in World War One, and replaced by a German person who looks so much like him. And uh, he goes through the, the paces of living as if he is Sir Evan for 24 years. And Sherlock Holmes says, they think ahead.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and So convincing is he that, that uh, Sir Evan even fools Watson who knew him at Oxford and played, I don't know, cricket or something with him.
3: Watson is of course so funny. And so is Sherlock Holmes. There's so much humor in this yes. in this film. Every time that something happens and Sherlock Holmes says, well, I meant for that to happen. Uh, so, yeah. and his, yeah. his, his egomania is so funny. Watson's naivete is so funny. There's just so much humor here, too.
1: Now, um, the actor playing uh, Byron, the, uh, the villain, is Reginald Denny. Now, he was in the, he played the villain in, Uh, the adaptation of uh, Jack London's uh, The Call of the Wild with Clark Gable. And he was also the, uh, you know, the idiot companion to Bulldog Drummond. And so (laughs) here's an actor who can like switch on a dime from those two roles. And that just brings home the end of the movie when he is revealed and he stands up and he faces off Holmes. And so here we've got the, finally, the confrontation between the two parts of the melodrama.
4: Preserve your vaunted British vanity as best you may. In this, your hour of most humiliating defeat. You have not captured us, my friend. We have annihilated you. Do you really think a so blind?
0: He doesn't run away as would be conventional. He stands up and and owns the betrayal and revels in it. And then we finally learn. well, why did you bother to hire Holmes in the first place? The motivation here is a little tricky, but it's because he wanted to expose Holmes as the idiot that he he really was. But of course, that didn't work out. I mean, he's standing there exposed. uh, So he's, but- um, It's a sort
1: of the film noir uh, part again. Uh, coming in, because you'll have like yeah. a detective story where the detective is hired actually by the villain.
0: Right. And, and but then he but as Lisa points out, he. It's 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 OK, because he's not really English to begin with. Mm-hmm. Right. So so the uh, the yeah. upper classes are still uh, pristine and exonerated from any any. uh Covert betrayal of the lower orders, but then, exactly. but then, in one of the most interesting moments that Matthew can address, um, Thomas Gomez's Mead, uh, standing with his hands up, is just so, so filled with rage at Kitty that uh, he, well, of as as you say, of all the people in the room that he could shoot at, and kind of thwart English recovery and war effort he shoots the woman <laughs> because you always shoot the woman in these things you know she's the femme fatale and she's she's not only betrayed uh a mead but she's betrayed the production code by having <laughs> sexual relations with a, uh, a a man outside the confines of marriage and and for being a prostitute theoretically though that, that word is never used
1: well you notice throughout this movie how You'll hear something, but you're seeing something different. And so here we've gone through the whole story and here we've got the confrontation at the end where all the characters are assembled and the detective explains what's been going on all this time. Uh, Rathbone does this expertly, which you have to do when you play one of these roles. And, uh, you know, William Powell was great as it in Mm -hmm. the the, the Sin Man series. So, Instead of just having that as the main thing going on, we've got the Mead and Kitty story in the background. Of course, they're not being very smart by, first off, not securing the prisoners with handcuffs or anything and doing a quick search for weapons on them. And then they bring out the informant in front of them. So that's uh, (laughs) uh, so that. There's a problem there, but it's like uh-huh. moves things along so that as Holmes is explaining and as he's confronting the villain now revealed, the audience is being cut to shown Gomez's character looking at the gun and Kitty looking at him. And, and that sort of builds up by the cast as they think everything's been resolved, ends up moving away from Kitty and she's like directly exposed to Gomez. And that's all shown visually as we're hearing the explanation by Holmes and the final confrontation with the villain who thinks that the Nazi invasion is is on its way. And he has every right to think that he's going to get out of this.
0: (laughs) There's a lot of a lot of traffic uh, uh, directing in in this particular passage just to get Kitty isolated so she can become the final victim.
3: It, and it is very noir too, right? The femme fatale, but also she's been soiled, as you pointed out, Doug. I mean, she's she's been soiled. She's been attached by the Nazi in a yeah. very intimate way, and she has. And in order for, and she's a strumpet, and she's been redeeming herself by being, uh, on the side of England and leading this army like Joan of Arc did, you know. <laughs> but she, but she still. So she is redeemed, and and Holmes says over her corpse. He says she will be honored, but she can't live because uh, exactly. you know she's. In order for her to be redeemed, she has to die. It's it's a it's a, you know it's 1942.
0: It's a strange morality that has nothing to do with the real world and only to do with the censoriousness of Hollywood at the time. There's an east wind coming, Watson.
2: No, I don't think so. Looks like
1: another warm day. How a movie ends designates what kind of movie it is, in spite of the other sort of tropes it seems to take on. And so this movie goes from the girl who sacrificed herself to avenge her husband's death, to uh, actually reading this piece from uh, Conan Doyle's last Sherlock Holmes story. Now, uh, Conan Doyle got his knighthood not for creating Sherlock Holmes, but for writing popular propaganda pieces. This is from uh, 1927. And so certainly the aftermath feelings uh, from the First World War, I believe he lost a son during the First World War. And so it's used to, you know, get us on board. You know, this is what the fight is about.
4: Good old Watson. The one fixed point in a changing age. There's an east wind coming all the same. Such a wind has never blew on England yet. It will be cold and bitter, Watson. And a good many of us may wither before it's blast. But it's God's own wind nonetheless. And a greener, better, stronger land will lie in the sunshine when the storm is cleared.
1: And then at the end, it's the uh, war bonds to uh, support the film. So this is a (laughs) pure war effort film, right from like the darkest years of the war. Um, 1942, we were engaged at the Battle of uh, Guadalcanal. In the Solomon's, which is considered a turning point, but this was just starting, and then in the real war, or the real main part of the war, Stalingrad, the siege of Stalingrad was going on at this in September of 1942. So
3: these things were still. And that's the East Wind. Right? Yeah, the East Wind is coming from Soviet Union.
0: The that's comic in there too. Yeah. Well, <laughs> we've been talking about a light comic, serious thriller masterpiece. Sherlock Holmes and the Voice of Terror. And we've been here with uh, Lisa Neville, always welcome, and Matthew of KBOO's Gremlin Time, his monthly uh, short story reading enterprise. And uh, we'll be back sometime later this year with yet another very special edition of Film at 11.